Today, we're going to do a deep dive on game balance. Hey everyone, I hope you're doing well. Welcome to the 34th episode of the Game Dev Field Guide. I am your host, Zaccavelli. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at underscore Zaccavelli underscore. We also have an open community Discord. The link is in the show notes. It's a great place. It's a great community to come and learn the craft of Game Dev, uh, learn alongside others. And we also host a monthly game jam. This month is kind of a special one. It's a team game jam. The theme is you are the villain. And so we kind of put people into teams to make a game where they are the villain. If that's something that interests you and you want to jump in, I'm sure teams wouldn't mind picking up an extra member. In fact, if that's something that interests you, you can be on my team. I have a team. So it's not too late. And definitely... Uh, if you, even if you don't want to be in the monthly game jam, you should go check out the community Discord. Lastly, we do have a Patreon, and this episode's kind of special because it's a topic that the patrons chose. Every month there's a poll on the Patreon where backers, uh, patrons, can vote on a episode topic. They also get special things like community Discord role, and yeah, it's just a nice way to give back to the show. It allows us to put out three episodes a month the third episode being the bonus episode. So, yeah, now that we got the intro out of the way, let's jump over to the Game Dev Challenge. The Game Dev Challenge is the part of the show where I provide a prompt, and the listeners submit a response, and then on the community Discord, we kind of vote on our favorite responses and declare a winner. And there's a leaderboard and everything. It's a good way to get some street cred within the community. And it's a really good way, even if you don't win, to kind of flex those game design or art or whatever the challenge is. It's kind of a good way to flex those muscles and get some practice and repetitions in. So last episode's prompt was to identify a flaw in a game you have played recently, propose a change, and design a playtesting session around your change. Remember to think about the blind spots. Last week, or last episode rather, remember we talked about playtesting and designing playtesting sessions and how to avoid um, blind spots. And honestly, we're kind of going to revisit some of that stuff today. There's a lot of crossover. But yeah, I like this topic and apparently so did you guys because we got a lot of submissions. But as you guys know, there can only be one winner. And so the winner of the episode 33 Game Dev Challenge is TJ. TJ's post is pretty long, so I'm going to have to paraphrase it a little bit. TJ says, the game I would like to focus on is Destiny 2, or specifically their endgame activity, Trials of Osiris. This Trials activity is an endgame PvP event where your opponents are chosen based on the number of wins you have. So it kind of works like a um, bracketed tournament where at the end you'll play another team with six wins. But anyways, back to TJ's post. What made Trials fun was to play against stronger competition as your games went on, allowing the ultimate experience to conclude with a very difficult match against a similarly strong team going for that final win. So yeah, to me it kind of sounds like a 
like a NCAA March Madness tournament, which sounds really fun for a PvP style. I always love those style of tournaments no matter what game they're in. But back to TJ's post. What causes this to break down is the reward structure. There are rewards that you can only earn once a week for going flawless, i.e. seven wins. And the only rewards you can obtain after that are tokens. You're given tokens after you win a match. So the incentives for good players to reset their trials passage after a win and stay in the low 0-1 win range. Okay, that makes sense. So it sounds like because you're given tokens after a win, you want to, after you get your flawless seven wins reward, whatever that is, then you can only get tokens. And it sounds like what's happening here is that you get tokens for a win no matter what, no matter if it was the first game you played or the fifth game you played. And so what people are doing is winning their first game and then resetting their trials so that they get another first game. That way you're always playing against the weakest competition. I guess it's kind of random, but in theory you're never playing against the teams that beat other teams. You're always playing that first game if you just keep resetting it. TJ goes on to mention that it begins a cycle of newer players getting constantly pub-stomped by experienced players farming them, causing newer players to avoid the trials. And eventually this has sort of a negative feedback loop where... New players just avoid trials because they don't like being farmed, and so the only people left are extremely skilled players, and it's just kind of ruined the whole structure. And this is kind of interesting because we're going to talk about balance later in the episode. I don't know if we're going to mention specifically reward balance, but I think you can draw some parallels to what we're going to talk about later in the episode. Back to TJ's post, though. TJ says, One dev played the trials with a bunch of streamers and got carried to seven wins, and remarked how it's possible for anyone, even him, to make it to seven wins. But that discounted the fact that the majority of players do not have the ability to be carried by streamers. And this is where TJ's post really got me to vote for it. He said a proper playtest would involve moderately skilled players with moderately diverse or moderately and diversely skilled team. This is a much more realistic scenario than playtesting with players who play the game for eight hours a day, i.e. the streamers. And he said it's not to be a rant, um, the Destiny 2 devs are actually great. So yeah, kind of a long post, um, I even paraphrased it a little, but there's a lot of good nuggets of information in there. Specifically, let's talk about what we talked about last week and designing a playtest. I think TJ correctly identifies that being carried by streamers is not going to give you an accurate representation of how good the average team is, um, how kind of the more casual players are. Because, of course, the streamers just, by nature of what they do, they play the game a lot. And so usually the people who play the game a lot are a lot more skilled. And, you know, maybe the dev was just, I, I don't know very much about the story, but maybe the dev was just remarking that or just kind of doing marketing by playing with streamers. But, yeah, they're definitely wrong if they say anyone, even him, can make it to seven wins, <laughs> anyone who also has incredibly good players on their team, which is not something everyone has. So yes, TJ's right. The The solution to this is to have a play test with moderately skilled players and a moderately or diversely skilled team because it is a much more realistic scenario for the average person playing. And I think a test of the rewards kind of restructure is also in order for this because you definitely need to solve that problem of people just farming those first games for win tokens which is a 
perfect topic because it's something we're going to kind of talk about in the game balance stuff later in the episode, like I said. And lastly, I thought this was kind of important to point out. Um, TJ said, this isn't a rant. The D2 devs are actually great. By D2, I, TJ probably meant Destiny 2 devs are, are actually great. And yeah, I think this is important to point out um, just because it's fair to criticize a mistake that a dev has done uh, because we all make mistakes and even the people at the very top of the you know world of game dev will make mistakes. And I think TJ did a really good job of having like a fair criticism here. As we all know, like in the video game world, sometimes the criticism can get pretty toxic and definitely targeted at the devs. When people say like, oh, they're lazy or they're dumb or whatever. But I can promise you that anyone who's made a video game isn't lazy and they aren't dumb. uh, Just by the nature of how hard it is to make a game. And so, yeah, I just wanted to applaud TJ for, you know, the fair criticism and how, uh, I don't know, I just think the game dev world is a better place if we acknowledge that we can make mistakes and do make mistakes, but that's not a reflection of, like, who we are. You're not dumb or lazy if you made a mistake, and that kind of goes for all devs, I think. And despite what I told you, (laughs) there's still going to be people on the internet who tell you you're dumb and lazy if you made a mistake, so... Maybe just in our community, maybe we can uh, make that distinction. And I wanted to applaud TJ for doing so. So yeah, congrats to TJ for winning the episode 33 Game Dev Challenge. TJ will go up on the leaderboard. And don't worry, you haven't missed your opportunity to get on the leaderboard yourself because episode 34 will also have a Game Dev Challenge. And the topic for the episode 34 Game Dev Challenge is... Propose a game idea that makes use of multiple counterplay loops. Later in this episode, we're going to talk about counterplay loops and kind of the way one game does them uh, and does them well. And I thought, yeah, this could be a fun opportunity to have you kind of exercise those game design muscles and come up with a kind of an elevator pitch, I guess, game idea that makes use of multiple counterplay loops. So if you have a good idea for that, jump onto the community discord. The link is in the show notes. Go to the Game Dev Challenge channel and type out your submission. With that, we're going to move over to the body of the episode. Today's episode is about game balance. Game balance is something we have touched on in a lot of episodes, and I think we've touched on it so much Uh, because it's a core component to any video game. You could think of game balance as a core pillar closely related to difficulty, engagement, and progression. But like I said, we've never really done a deep dive on specifically game balance. I thought it might be a good idea since I reference it so much. I thought maybe it'd be a good time to dive in. And apparently so did the patrons because they voted for this topic. So first, I think we should define what exactly game balance is. Game balance, to me, is the measure of how fair the relationship between the players and other players or the players and a computer opponent or maybe the challenge or various other elements in the game are. It should be noted that that definition um, of game balance very much depends on the context of the game and how it's used, whether the game's like multiplayer, single player, stuff like that. So you kind of have to adapt the definition. But there's some basic like ground level stuff that I think is applicable to all situations. Notice the 
term I used relationships in the definition. I think relationships is a key idea to understanding game balance. And typically, you would measure game balance in terms of relationships, like how good a gun is compared to another. The relationship between those two guns is what you're balancing. Other examples are how good a companion character is compared to other characters, how fun it is to play a certain class over others. These are all examples of trying to get a grip on the game's balance based on measuring relationships of key mechanics and the strategies to employ them. And I think I've made this point in previous episodes, but I want to explore it a little more. In the past, I have said that a perfectly balanced game isn't necessarily a fun game. And I think there's two ways, kind of two extremes, like methods on how to make a perfectly balanced game. And remember that both of the examples I'm about to give are kind of extremes. And I think these strategies do work, uh, but you should be careful to avoid the extremes. So let's talk about the first strategy to a perfectly balanced game. And that would be a game that is balanced by uniformity. To give an example, let's imagine a game with a hundred different guns. Let's say you wanted this game to be very competitive so that the balance of the guns has to be perfect. Well, the easiest way to do that is to make all the guns behave and perform similarly. And sure, you could vary the things like magazine size, fire rate, damage... Um, But the more they are different from the norm and the higher you tweak those things, the more the game is thrown out of balance. And so the fix to the issue is to have all 100 of the guns be middle of the road in most aspects with maybe a few variations. And that way all of the guns behave the same, all have the same performance. And once you've done that, you technically have a game that is nearly perfectly balanced. The problem is that while you have a balanced game, you don't have a very interesting or fun game. If every gun more or less behaves the same, then you kind of lost the magic of having a bunch of guns in the first place. So we can see how in this extreme case, making a perfectly balanced game through uniformity can make for a pretty boring game. And it's an example of how a balanced game is not a good game or a fun game. Let's consider a different case. Let's think about rock, paper, scissors, or Rochambeau. Rock, paper, scissors is a case where each element is an extreme and could not be any more different than the other elements. Each hand signal in rock, paper, scissors act as a hard counter to each other, and each element is either 100% or 0% effective to the other. And they form a loop in their effectiveness so that each one has one threat and one counter. Rather than having a game that's balanced by uniformity, this game is balanced by perfect counters. But the problem with rock, paper, scissors is that if played perfectly randomly, it's not really a game of skill and more just a game of luck. It's no different than guessing heads or tails on a coin flip. And so I think balancing a game through pure hard counters that form a loop doesn't really work that well when taken to an extreme. And of course, my example there makes a big assumption. And that's that people choose perfectly at random what symbol they're going to use. But we know, I mean, if you ever played Rock, Paper, Scissors, you know that people do not pick perfectly randomly. And that's where we get into the more gray areas and the middling ideas of game balance, where I think that these imperfections like people not playing randomly 
actually kind of make the game more fun. And even though they technically throw the game out of balance, I think little things like that actually make the balance maybe even swing a little bit, which is more interesting. Employs a little bit more, in the case of Rock, Paper, Scissors, it employs a little bit more mind games and strategy and fun. The point of these two examples that I gave you was to show you the game balancing strategies that I'm going to talk about. What happens when you take them to the extreme and you make a perfectly balanced game? I wanted you to see that things that are perfectly balanced are not that interesting or fun. And like I said, it's actually the imbalances and the non-perfect stuff that makes a game fun. So the point of all this is that a perfectly balanced game is not what we're after. And I think that's important groundwork to understand. What we really want is a fair game where players' imperfect decisions have meaning. So just know from now on when I say a balanced game, uh, know that I don't mean a perfectly balanced game. And I think an example is in order to kind of cement the idea. So for me, what is like the high mark of a balanced game? Well, I think a good example of a balanced game is Halo 3. It employs both strategies of uniformity and hard counter loops, but it's deep strategy, skill ceiling, a little bit of randomness, and kind of unaccounted for imperfections make a game that is well-balanced and yet totally fun. First, let's look at how it employs strategies of uniformity. Weapons in Halo are asymmetrical, meaning that weapons from the human faction and the alien faction uh, kind of behave differently. The key, though, is that they are balanced in uniformity through their role. For instance, if you need to do a ton of damage up close, both factions have a weapon for that. Both factions have a weapon that fills that role. Humans have the shotgun, and the Covenant, or aliens, have a plasma sword. You can see that their role is uniform, but the asymmetry and what they are and how you use them makes the game deeper and more interesting. Sort of the imbalance between the two factions actually makes the balance more cool, if that makes sense. The developers Bungie could have easily said, well, the aliens have a shotgun too, and it has a bigger magazine or does less damage or something like that. But instead of making them uniform in that both factions have a shotgun, they just made the role uniform, and I think that's the key. Because, like I said, the asymmetry of how they are used, the art and design and all that cool stuff is what makes them interesting. Next, let's look at how Halo was balanced with hard counter loops, and how they did this without becoming boring like rock, paper, scissors. Halo 3 has a few counter loops, actually probably more than a few, uh, but what's interesting to me is how they interact with different game elements and mechanics. And by that I mean it's not just that this gun beats that gun, which is beaten by that gun, but in a few cases in Halo, it's a gun that counters a vehicle, and that vehicle itself is countered by equipment or other vehicles or other weapons. I hope you can see how, in Halo's case, the counter loops kind of span across mechanics. They go from guns to vehicles to equipment. And so the, the specific instance I want to talk about is kind of the power dynamic of the Spartan laser. The Spartan laser is a power weapon that is basically a one-shot to anything, um, and it's intended to be used to counter vehicles. It's basically a, a giant shoulder mounted laser that has a long charge up time 
and a brief time the laser is actually fired, but anything the laser touches is dead. And I think it's important to point out that that cost-to-benefit ratio of the long charge-up time and the brief firing period are there to bring it more in uniform line with the other counter-vehicle weapons like the rocket launcher. There's another example of uniformity through roll and kind of balancing the cost-to-benefit ratio uh, to have similar power. But anyways, back to the counter-loop. Someone with a laser can be dealt with by using an equipment like a bubble shield, which is like a clear dome that doesn't allow for the passage of projectiles or lasers. And because of that, the person with the laser has to get up close and can be dealt with because the laser isn't that great at close range. But interestingly enough, the bubble shield does not keep out vehicles. So a good counter to the bubble shield is to just drive through it and you splatter everyone inside the, the dome. And so I hope you can see there's sort of this rock, paper, scissors element to the example. But it's not exactly, one, it's not exactly a hard counter loop. And two, it's not about like a gun versus a gun. It's kind of different mechanics all interacting with each other and more about the relationship of strategies. It's not a perfectly hard counter because it depends on skill, ammunition, luck, uh, happenstance. And so, yeah, I think for those reasons, it's just a lot more interesting than your classic rock, paper, scissors kind of mechanic. And this isn't the only example. Halo has multiple loops like this that span different mechanics. In the single-player campaign, for instance, there's sort of a hidden mechanic where alien weapons work good against anything with shields, energy shields, and human weapons work good against, like, fleshy targets. And in the story, the aliens happen to come up against a third faction uh, that doesn't really use shields. And so this kind of rebalances the human weapons, because uh, before this third faction's introduced, it's, they're kind of just a straight-up downgrade. Uh, when everyone has energy shields, the alien weapons are just better. So Halo is full of these subtle counter loops. And I think once you start to look at your own favorite games, you'll see these counter loops in their design. And you'll see how in most cases they aren't hard counters where everything is 100% or 0% effective like rock, paper, scissors, but they are there to kind of help balance the game. And I think there's two key take takeaways from the Halo example that really make for good counter loops. The first being whether or not you're in the position to make a perfect counter depends on a lot of factors like skill, ammunition, and luck. What this does is kind of makes it so you're never in that like 100% effective area and you're never going to be in that 0% effective area. And so it makes the counter loop depend on a couple more factors and makes it a little bit more interesting and deep. Another way to think about this is that, like, for instance, in Rock, Paper, Scissors, it would be a lot more fun um, and the strategies would be a lot different if you actually had to, like, run and find a rock or a piece of paper or a pair of scissors because there would be a lot more, like, strategy and fun involved. And uh, anyways, back to Halo. The other thing to learn from how it does counter loops is that they span multiple mechanics to make things a little bit more interesting than just a straight-up similar element loop. And it kind of blends and balances all the mechanics together rather than separately in a vacuum. So now, now that we've talked about um, some theories and kind of some game design and planning for balanced games, and we sort of laid the groundwork and gave some good examples, 
let's talk about how you might actually balance your game, usually after the fact, because I can guarantee that if you're lucky enough to have your game played a bunch, cracks in the armor will definitely show as far as the game's balance. This is simply because for most games, there's just too many variables um, and too many situations to account for. If a big company like Riot Games has to make balance patches for League of Legends, then odds are so will you. And this is where we're going to get into the actual methods of how to balance your game. So if the first part of this episode was understanding what balance is and kind of designing a balanced game, this is going to be about balancing a game that's already been made or maybe a game that's in progress and being playtested. Now, a lot of resources online will try to use like advanced probability, linear algebra, and decision matrices to figure out mathematically the balance of their game and to better understand the relationships between the mechanics and features. And remember how I said before that relationships are key to understanding the idea of balance. I do think these mathematical models are effective, but I don't think they're all that practical for the average dev listening to this show. So the way that I'm going to talk about it, and I'm not saying this is the best way, but I think it's the most practical way for people listening, we're going to rely on a much easier and kind of more brute force method. And I'm not a mathematician, but if you wanted to classify this method, I think you might call it a Monte Carlo method. And put really simply, a Monte Carlo method is a way of seeing relationships through random samples of data. For example, let's say we want to know what damage a weapon should have to kill a boss in three hits. And let's say for the sake of the example, the boss has 100 health. We then would just try a weapon damage and simulate it and see how many hits it takes. And sooner or later, we're going to try a damage value that is perfectly three hits. So let's say we simulate it and we start with 25 damage. And we see, okay, that takes four hits. And then maybe we jump up to 50 and we see, okay, it takes two at 50. So we know the damage we're looking for is somewhere between 25 and 50. And then we try again with numbers in that range and see how close we could get to a number that has three hits. Now, of course, in this example, it would be really easy to just do the algebra and divide 100 by 3 to get your answer. And that would be the faster way. Uh, so the Monte Carlo method maybe wouldn't be good for that example. But what if the algebra wasn't so easy? What if our problem we wanted to solve was really complex? Like, we want to see the how fast the scope in time should be for a player with a sniper rifle while jumping off a roof while being flashbanged to kill an enemy in one shot. The algebra for that is going to be a lot more complex and you might not even know how to write an equation to represent that. And yeah, if you're really good at math, uh, maybe with a bunch of crazy equations and stuff like that, you could come up with some sort of thing to do the algebra and get the perfect number that represents the scope and time you should have for that. But we could also just use the Monte Carlo method and kind of figure out the pattern of the relationship. That is the scope in time to the accuracy of the player getting a headshot. And so how you would do this is you would simulate the player doing those things and vary the scope in time and then measure the accuracy of the shot. And after brute force trying a bunch of different scope in time, sooner or later you're going to come to the value that feels right. 
Now, you have to be smart about how you do this because you don't have all day to just try it out a million times. And for smaller games like jam games, you might actually have the time to try it out because your mechanics are going to be really simple and you can just play test over and over and over and try different values and figure it out. And this kind of is where the big crossover with the playtesting episode happens. So go back and listen to that to kind of figure out how to do it that way. But I think you can really inform your playtesting and your game balance for that matter if you're smart about how you collect your data and you make some educated estimates. And this is where spreadsheets really come in handy. Knowing how to use a spreadsheet to organize and simulate your game balance and collect data I think is a really important skill. And it's probably worth investing a little bit of time learning spreadsheets if you're serious about game design and game balance. The beauty of spreadsheets is that it organizes all your data and it allows you to run simulations and graph your outcomes. And having all of these things makes it a lot easier to see the relationships of your game's balance, especially representing them in something like graphs. And the simulation kind of sounds like a, a fancy word, but that aspect of it is actually way easier than it sounds. All it requires is some educated guesses on what the value should be. Let's take our jump-shooting, flash-banged sniper example. We could take a guess at the window of opportunity they would have to make the shot. We would maybe take into account the fall speed, how long the screen has flashed for, stuff like that. Let's say after considering all that, we say we have about one second. Then all you have to do is playtest people shooting with varying scope scoping times that are less than one second. And then you can graph that, measure it against the accuracy rate, and there you go. You have a graph that represents the balance of your scope in time. And when you find that perfect value, you know it'll fit for your perfect situation. Now, unless your game involves a lot of roof-jumping, flashbang sniping, uh, maybe that experiment isn't particularly useful. But I hope you can see how the Monte Carlo kind of method can be used for really complex situations. And actually, probably most experiments won't be as complex. But the beauty of it is that if you're doing this after the game is out or it's already being played, then you have lots of data for your spreadsheet experiments. And then the trick is picking the right data and performing the right balance experiments. When you have all of these people playing your game, I think it's going to be, if you're collecting the right data, I think it's going to be a little bit easier to really dial in what those values should be. Diagnosing what data you should be looking at and maybe kind of understanding the relationships can really be aided by feedback from your players and playtesters. If the game is already out and you're fortunate enough to have a lot of players, you hopefully, like I said, will have a lot of data and maybe even some of your more experienced players will be able to help diagnose the problem. Like if a certain weapon is too good, maybe your players have already identified that the power to cost ratio is really good and therefore you have two variables that you need to look at in order to balance the weapon. Then you could use the Monte Carlo method and run some simulations to decide if you should increase the cost or nerf the power of the weapon. This might look something like how many shots does it take to kill a full health player and compare all the guns and then vary the gun in question and measure the relationship between that gun and the other ones. The problem with listening to your players for feedback on the balance 
is that sometimes the game is out of balance due to a hidden or lurking variable. This is when it feels to the player base like the cause is one thing, but they don't see the behind the scenes stuff, the kind of guts of the game that only the developer knows, and really sometimes it's that stuff that is the cause of imbalances. So be careful that the true balance of the game is being affected by what the players think it is. Be careful that they're not maybe misinterpreting it and it's really a lurking variable or a hidden variable because changing the kind of more forward-facing variables won't solve the problem and actually could maybe even make it worse. Spreadsheets don't just have to be used for Monte Carlo simulations too. There's lots of other techniques um, that could be used to help balance your game. One I want to talk about that I've maybe mentioned a few times is kind of the power to cost ratio or there's lots of names for it but basically it's measuring the balance of something based on how good it is and how much it costs. Now of course this has to be adapted for a few different game situations and it'll be a little bit different depending on the game. But the idea here is that if you come up with some kind of ratio that balances the power to the cost then it kind of puts a rating on whatever it is you're balancing that can be comparable to other things in the game. It allows you to boil the balance or the relationship between two things down to one number where you can compare just the one number. Now you have to be really careful because hidden in that one number is a whole bunch of factors. So let's for instance say that we're comparing two guns. You could say that for every good thing it gets a plus one and for every bad thing it gets a minus one. And technically if it's balanced then at the end you'll have a sum of zero. So let's say we have an assault rifle with high damage, there's a plus one, but a low magazine, there's a minus one. And so its final sum then is zero. And that's a good way of balancing it. You'll know that if a gun is maybe too strong and the value will be more than zero and if it's too weak it'll be negative. For instance a gun with a small magazine and low damage would be a negative two. Doing this kind of method, this comparative power cost method, really allows you to get everything on an even playing field and remember what I said before about how maybe you don't want every gun to be a perfect zero. But yeah, I think organizing all of your stuff in a spreadsheet like this allows you to do this method very simply and it's just like a good gut check on whether or not things in your game are balanced. And so the last thing I want to talk about for game balance today is the idea of a rippling effect when you propose a change. Because balance is about relationships, one thing you have to keep in mind is that it's impossible to change just one thing. An increase in power of one thing is a comparative decrease in power for the other things in the same vein. Because what we're measuring is the relationship, let's just go back to guns for a second, if you can only take one gun, then inherently making one gun more attractive makes the other one less attractive. And so you just want to keep that in mind that it's impossible to just buff one thing or debuff something else in most cases because everything is kind of tied in its relationships to each other. Because of this, I usually go for a two birds, one stone approach. 
That is, I try and focus on things or changes that will buff underpowered things and nerf overpowered things with one change. And typically, I think the best way to do this is to directly buff the underpowered things, and thereby the things that that counters um, or competes with are then kind of passively debuffed because of their relationship with each other. And of course, that example is a best case scenario. It doesn't always work out that way, and it's not always that easy. But the point is to be aware of the ripple effect and maybe try and solve more than one thing with a rippling change. So we did a bit of a deep dive today, so I'm just going to summarize things and kind of highlight the key points that you should remember. Game balance is a core pillar to a video game's design. It is the measure of all the different relationships between each mechanic, feature, or strategy a game has to offer. A game in good balance has equally viable mechanics, features, and strategies. But remember that a perfectly balanced game is not the goal. A perfectly balanced game is rather uninteresting. It's kind of boring and it's actually the imbalances that make it fun. Two strategies to balance a game are doing it through uniformity and balance through counter loops. When you take them to their extremes both can result in a perfectly balanced game uh, but like we said a perfectly balanced game is neither a fun or interesting game. The fun and interesting games that are also balanced um, actually have natural imbalances that depend on many variables. Some might be like skills, resources, strategy, or happenstance. Halo 3, in my mind, is the perfect example of a well-balanced game. This is due to the asymmetry of the weapons, but the fact that they fill uniform roles. And basically, you can think about this idea is that the weapons achieve the same goal, but are used differently and interestingly. Halo also makes use of many counter loops, um, but the loops are made in a way that kind of cross over mechanics and strategies and features, and they depend on several factors to be played perfectly, and it's almost never a perfectly hard counter. Remember that it's possible and likely that the game you design won't be properly balanced from the first go. But when you have lots of players and playtesters, it's possible to rebalance the game. And the most practical way in my mind for a small indie dev to do this is some sort of Monte Carlo method. This is where you use randomly sampled data and control variables to essentially dial in the right values. It is sort of a trial and error brute force method, uh, but it works well for getting values that are close to what you want. Tweaking values and trial and error testing can be greatly improved with some educated guess on what the value should be, and it's important to listen to player feedback when trying to diagnose exactly what kind of variables you should be trying to balance. But remember, when listening to player feedback, look out for hidden variables that might affect your game's balance. These are things that the players might not necessarily be aware about because they can't see behind the scenes. Remember that spreadsheeting in general is a really important skill for game balance and game design really in general, and it allows you to organize your data and maybe even set up some kind of power-cost ratio so that you can better compare things in your game and check their balance just by comparing one number. 
And lastly, be aware of the ripple effect. Know that because balance is about relationships, it's impossible to balance one thing at a time. A change for one thing is a change for another just because everything is connected. Another way you can think about it is that improving one thing makes another thing that's tied to it less desirable just because of the relationship between the two things and the fact that they are always going to be compared. But this is actually sometimes a useful thing because you can use this to your advantage to try and get two birds with one stone. One of the best examples of this is to find something that is underpowered and maybe counter something that's overpowered and buff the thing that's underpowered thereby nerfing the thing that is overpowered because it's a counter and they have that sort of relationship. It doesn't always work out that way, but that's an example of how you can use the ripple effect to balance multiple things at once. So I hope I didn't ramble on for too long or get too in the weeds this episode. There's a lot of good stuff in there, so I hope you've made it this far. Uh, remember, if you want to get a hold of me, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram. That's at underscore Zachavilli underscore. We have a community Discord that really is a great place. I check it every day. There's always good discussions and all sorts of good stuff on there. There's an open invite link in the show notes. And uh, yeah, I'll leave a link to the Patreon in the show notes too in case that interests you. Oh, I forgot to mention, maybe this interests you. Um, we're having an emoji contest. we got to fill up some emoji slots in our community Discord, so if that's something that interests you, go throw in a submission for that. Anyways, with that, I'm going to sign off. I have been Zaccavelli. The Spartan laser has no counters when it's in my hands. And I'll see you guys next time.